Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Neil Studd. Based in Glossop, Neil is an engineering coach with over 20 years' experience of working in agile software development teams, predominantly in the world of testing. You can follow him on LinkedIn and check out his website at motivation.co.uk. Neil is the author of the LeanPub book, Finding Motivation, How to Create Contentment in Your Work and Personal Life. In the book, Neil provides you with a guide to getting ahead in your career while staying true to yourself with a healthy balance of happiness and productivity. In this interview, we're going to talk about Neil's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you very much, Neil, for being on the Front Matter podcast. It's an absolute pleasure, Len. I've had a lot of experience from the, the hosting side of a podcast. And as someone who I think it comes across in the book, I am an extremely organized, regimented person. So the idea of coming into a podcast with no idea how it's going to go is very strange, but you're, uh, you've done a really good job of putting me at ease. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, I, I sometimes I sometimes get, there's a sort of different types of people who do, do things different ways. And some people are like, oh, the last thing I want is a plan. And other people are like, no plan. Um, and, <laughs> and so... Um, uh, just for anyone listening, uh, one thing I, I, I often try to say is that these these um, uh, interviews often have three parts. So for anyone who's like, what's the plan? Let's I'll just say it out loud right now. So although the conversations can go in various directions, typically we start by talking about the uh, guest's background and career and things like that, how they got to where they are. Uh, often it's a very interesting story, and I know Neil has an interesting story to tell about that. Uh, then in the middle uh, part of the interview, we talk about their book or their books if they've, if they've published more than one. And the sort of um, what they've written about and what they're an expert in and things like that. And then in the last part of the interview, we talk about if the guest is an author, we talk about their experience writing their books or book. Um, and uh, believe it or not, there are people who skip to that end part um, uh, who just want to know, like, you know, they're going through their own writing journey and things like that. And they just want to learn, you know, how other people have approached it. Um, so, yeah, so the, the, I guess let's start with part one. So, Neil, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in uh, software engineering and software testing in particular? Yeah, it's a, it was a, a bit of a wiggly journey. Uh, the, the journey weirdly really to being an author kind of almost makes sense, or be with like a 20-year bit in the middle where it went weird for a while. Uh, as a child, I really wanted to be a journalist. Uh, everyone at school told me that I excelled at English and creative writing. I even technically had a book in the school library. They published one of these stories I had written at school and put it into our school library. So I really had the like the writing book. And so I pursued a career uh, through to university in journalism. It was an area that really, really uh, appealed to me. Uh, and I graduated in 2003, which was not the death knell of journalism, but the signs were all there. You know, the internet had taken off. Um, papers were, were scrabbling to, you know, do what they could to keep their readership and, uh, all that university gave me was this jadedness of it really is a career with long hours, low pay, uh, with the best opportunities going to the people who already know people. And I was kind of at this this, this crisis point, and I, and I touch on it a bit in the book. I, I walk the readers through this journey because some people might be having a similar journey themselves where it's not that they don't know about their career path. It's they don't even know what they want to do as a career. And so fresh from that, uh, part of me wanted to keep um, some eye on the world of journalism. So I joined a, a local startup that uh, built websites for the magazine industry, thinking that maybe I might make some connections and I might maybe make that journey back into journalism at some point. But it, it quickly became clear that actually I, I really enjoyed working in, in software development. And I tried sort of six or seven different roles in that first company. It was a very small company and just everyone had to wear many hats at any given time. And finally found that I, I really enjoyed testing. I think partly because 
I already had an eye for detail from my from my time of being a journalist, and like it, it really appealed to me as a career. And from there, I went on a, a fairly typical career journey where you start off as a junior, you work you work you up to a more senior, more technical role, eventually moving into management. And by the time I reached test management and quality management, um, I really enjoyed everything where I got to work with people and where I got to see uh, people thrive and flourish and grow. And I got to have interactions with people where they came out at the end uh, feeling better for it. And that's just working with people and improving people's lives is what I really enjoy doing. Unfortunately, a lot of management is also the reverse of that. It's people who need you to be able to do things for you that you can't, be it get them a pay rise that the company won't give them or open up an opportunity that doesn't exist in a team that isn't there yet. And uh, in many ways, the, the stuff that I was enjoying was really being countered by the stuff that I just didn't enjoy doing. And I wanted to focus on sort of only positive interactions. And about uh, like last summer, the summer of 2022, I went through this, this kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, like almost an existential crisis of... Uh, I'd changed jobs twice in 12 months. I, I'd, I'd taken a role with a company that, that it felt like it was going to be my dream job, but it turned out not to be. So I left that and went somewhere else, and that also turned out not to be great. And so last summer, um, the summer of 2022, is when I discovered, and when I first came up with the term motivation myself to describe um, how it is that I, I think about motivation, which we'll get to in a bit. But I, I took time out of the work entirely to just think about, right, back to the drawing board. What do I enjoy doing? What do I want to do as a career? And that's where last summer I made this career pivot and I'm now an engineering coach. So I actually spend all of my time working for an organization called Makers who train people who want to get into software development and, and software testing. So juniors or people who are reskilling from other industries and who are going not just on a learning journey, but also sort of, you know, a, a mental journey as well of, of being comfortable with not knowing things, of learning how to work within an organization, within a team infrastructure. And... Basically, it's all the good stuff that I loved about my old jobs, uh, but it's only that. And and this this new role of coaching is is uh, it's wonderful. I've been doing it for a year and a half. I've taken professional qualifications now, and um, I just I just love working with people. That that's such a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, one thing I wanted to take a moment to talk about because I think I think you've talked about it on podcasts before. I listened to a few researching for this interview, and maybe you've written about it too, but. This idea that in order to, well, fact that in order to get ahead in journalism, you often already have to have connections in that world is a very, it can be a very depressing one to encounter. It exists in various forms as well. For example, often, and I think this is a particularly a problem in the UK, um, where doing an unpaid internship for a long time is actually a necessary condition for getting ahead. And then that means that you probably have to come whether you have connections or not, it means you probably come from some money, um, and that can that can be a sort of you know, it's a sort of very frustrating barrier to come up against if you don't have that advantage. But it's you know, it just reminds me of something that I often find, particularly in American journalism. You know, I'll sort of discover new journalists, really like what they're doing, and it turns out, yeah, of course, like their their parent, you know, owned a network or was you know a famous journalists themselves or something like that. And it can often be very frustrating uh, to encounter that. And that that's true in any industry where you realize, oh no, this is a connections-based thing and I'm coming from nowhere. Yeah. And, and acting as well is absolutely the same. When you see a, a breakthrough star or a first-time director and you you think, where do I know that name from? And it's like, okay, yeah, there's a bit of a, 
of nepotism there's, there's certainly still you know skill there you know it, it comes from that whole nature nurture thing you know if you're around people who do that you are bound to develop a talent for that uh, but there is a lot of, of of sort of bootstrapping that needs to go on and the modern media does make that easier than it used to be uh when, certainly when i graduated as a journalist i mean i i had a blog technically at the time i had a website a web presence it was very cringy but it existed but these days you know anyone who wants to start creating for themselves can put things out there uh, it does then come down to as you say a question of how long can you afford that to do that before it becomes before you need it to be generating revenue for you and i do reflect on this a little bit in the book the fact that this break i took last summer i was i'm just fortunate enough to be able to do it i had some funds behind me that meant i could afford to just stop working and it's the only time in my career that i've left a job without knowing what's going to and taking a deliberate two or three months off work uh, i was very very fortunate to do that and it's one of the reasons that this book exists. It's it's aiming to show people that while I took this massive break, there are ways that you can sort of tweak your day-to-day -day work to give yourself some of those opportunities alongside what you're already doing and without also taking on too much because that's also a real danger of ending up in a, a world of burnout. Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, that's totally true. And I just I just wanted to sort of second what you what you mentioned there is that, you know, although at, at the time, you know, so let's say 2003, 2004, when a lot of newspapers were seeing their fortune doing that. The actual world of the kind of out of nowhere blogger being able to kind of make it and you know even create whole like you know kind of news organizations of their own was something that was actually just just starting at that time. Um, so the sort of wheel of fortune was was turning uh, on on all sides um, uh, at that time. Um, one question I actually haven't asked on the podcast for a while, but it it, it used to come up all the time is. Um, given that you, you sort of studied journalism in university and the way your, your career went, if you were starting out now with the intention of having a career, let's say as a, in software engineering or in software testing, would you get a, go to university and get like a computer science degree or would you choose a different path at the beginning stage of your, your career? Mm. Uh, I think... There's a, there's a sign that I hold up to students, um, for, for those who are watching on video, um, <laughs> there's a sign that I famously hold up in lectures that's the answer to almost every single question. And it, the, the question is, it's not going to come out well in the video. Oh, no. Uh, it, ah, it, there we go. it depends. <laughs> it depends. Um, computer science degrees are certainly a, a really good route, but as you say, they are an expensive one and cert only certain people will tend to be able to afford to go down that route. Uh, again, the way the world is right now, there are lots of opportunities out there to get experience for free. Um, some of those do involve internships and, and unpaid um, sections of work, but there are shortcuts there to to get the experience that you need. The, the organization that I work for uh, takes uh, on board apprentices from companies like um, Google and Apple and Microsoft, uh, people who join those companies as juniors, uh, like knowing that they're coming in untrained. And then those companies send them to us and we put them through an intensive 12-week boot camp where they get to learn all the core skills in a really intense period of time, including how to operate in workplaces. So it's not just learning the technical skills, because there are loads of places where you can just pick up some technical skills, you know, do your own uh, online coding course on websites like Code Academy and things like that. There are free training courses available on sites like uh, Udemy and YouTube, obviously. Um, getting exposure and experience is, is, the, is, the, is the big thing. Computer science degrees are great, but they won't teach you real world experience, or not, not as much as actually living and breathing it. And sometimes the way to do that is by going on, for example, a boot camp like we teach. Yeah, I know that sounds like an, like an amazing service to offer. And it's sort of like, you know, that sort of answers that 
you know, I mean, I mean, I would, my position would be that university is not job training and it's not, it's not, it's not a, a gap or an absence in any way that you don't learn how to be an employee when you're learning about things like computer science or physics or, or whatever it is. That's what you're there to do at university, not there to learn how to be a good colleague or shine your shoes or what have you. Um, but those are, but like, I'm putting it kind of, you know, in a funny way. Of course, there's like incredibly important things. And if you can learn them, like, like say in a 12 week boot camp at the beginning of your career, that's dedicated to sort of that instead of just ad hoc picking things up along the way, that sounds just like in a really amazing way to do it. It's especially if you're sort of switching from one industry into another or one set of work skills into another, it just sounds like an amazing thing. It must be, must be a lot of sort of fun to see people, well, I mean, often fun to see people move along. Um, one, one thing. I wanted to ask you about, because I know you write about this, is when did you start working remotely? I actually started, I'm going to say before it was cool. I'm not sure that COVID was cool, but uh, I actually took a job in 2017, which was fully remote. Um, it was with someone I'd I'd been working under before. So he like headhunted me to go and work with him, which I think I would have done anyway. But the, the, the caravan that he dangled was, hey, this is a team that works entirely remotely. And that was a thing I'd never heard of before. It was quite a rarity but it was, it was still a time where even having a day or so a week working from home was seen not only as a perk but kind of some companies even frowned upon it the idea that you spend one day a week working from home and no one's looking at what you're doing and um, a colleague of mine used to call it oh, i wish you're doing the gardening day but so to go from that to being working fully remote um, it was an exciting opportunity uh, at the time i had to to reposition my uh my life quite a lot because I was I was living in a tiny little village at the time, which was absolutely beautiful. It's a lovely little village on the edge of some farmland. I had donkeys outside in, in the, the garden of my house. It was beautiful. But the, the internet speed peaked at one megabyte, which is not good for daily video conferencing, pushing stuff to GitHub and things like that. So I had to move to a, a town that had a decent internet connection to take a fully remote job. Uh, but it kind of revolutionized my life. And it, it, to the extent that um, when I was working fully remotely, like I just, it felt like, it felt like I could always put life first. I, just, I, I was still committed to my job, but it, I wasn't like working and then trying to squeeze life in around it. It was more the other way around. For example, I, I did a bit of traveling in Europe and I didn't have to take any time off work. I could just take my laptop, work from Latvia for a week. And then when I finished my working day, I get to explore Latvia rather than being in my, my hometown. And it just meant, like, I was a real advocate of, of remote working. It meant I was able to relocate from the south of England up to where I live now on the outskirts of Manchester, in the hills around Manchester, without changing my job because I just took my laptop with me to my new house and I was able to make a huge life change without even having to think about the impact on my work. So, obviously 2020 was a big change for us, but I, I was kind of ready for it. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. It's um, it's that's a subject I'm passionate about and could talk about a lot. Um, I just, just as a sort of, I won't go on too long, but just to sort of give it kind of indirect way into, into how I feel about when people sort of do that, oh, it's your gardening day or something like that. There's this, um, uh, well-known, uh, theoretical physicist named Sean Carroll, who talks about this story, but basically at a certain point, he was a tenure track physics professor and he was denied tenure. And I hope to anyone listening, if I get the details wrong, I'm getting the spirit of it, right. My apologies if I get any details wrong, but basically he got denied tenure because he wrote and published a first year physics textbook. 
And the people on his tenure committee said, at your, an ambitious person at your stage of your career wouldn't be writing first-year physics textbooks. They'd be doing research papers and stuff like that. And he said, but it was my hobby that I loved doing it. If I'd spent that, if they'd found out I was in a band playing bass and we'd just come out with an album, they wouldn't have denied me tenure on those grounds. And so I just bring that up in the context of like, if you're commuting an hour each way to work, why doesn't all the, all those sort of, oh, it's your gardening day, day people, where are they when it comes to that time spent by you not working? Um, where, 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 where's their complaint about that? And, you know, I'd like another, another version of that is like, you know, when people, if, if businesses claim, you know, oh, 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 it's, well, it's extremely valuable for us to actually have people in a central place, productivity, creativity, things like that. Well, then pay for it, pay for the time, pay for the travel and pay for the risk. If it's really, if you're seriously saying, I make more money from you by having you come to a central location, then you should be paid for the effort it takes to get there. Anyway, my little rant. I I could write a whole separate book on, on that. Absolutely. Uh, in here in the UK, we have a couple of things that always hit us badly. We have um, rail strikes, so rail workers going on strike for better pay, which is absolutely something I support. But it means that they will often call wildcat strikes, and surprise, there's no trains today. Uh, and similarly, any time the weather veers like one or two degree from the norm, and you get too much rain or any snow just the roads just break and just having now worked from home for, for six or seven years it's just looking back to how we used to work i still see pictures of of people on on the the tube in, in the peak rush hour just queuing to get into the station and i think i'm sure some great stuff happens when you collaborate and you put people all in the room at the same time but is it worth all that every day for your next 40 years I know exactly what you mean, having been a uh, London commuter for two two years of my life, like that literally lines outside the train station, like outside the tube station. Um, and then when you get in, you sort of crammed onto a platform and you might have to wait for two or three whole trains to go by before you can finally squeeze into one. There better be a lot of value at the end of that process <laughs> if you're going to make people do it every single day. Um, and there, there just often isn't, and, you know, they just, just to, not to go too, too far on that, but kind of thing, but like the idea that because someone's commuted and they're in an office, they're not dealing with their personal life, their home lives anyway, is just maybe if they're, I mean, maybe if they're like me and they have no kids or something like that, but like anyone with kids is going to have all kinds of balls that they're juggling all day long anyway, all kinds of things that they're thinking about, oh no. How am I going to handle this situation? Oh, my kid's sick today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And working from home just solves so many problems. Um, and I guess my, my last kind of like whiny complaint would be like, if you can't trust your employees to work when you're not looking at them, uh, you, there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with your employees, <laughs> but, but, but some kind of, you know, scheme of observation is you know might might i mean that's one way to solve that problem i guess yeah it's it's the classic quote is uh that i now can't attribute on the fly it's it's something like hire great people and then get out of their way i don't know if it was branson or someone along that those lines it just said you know if you trust the people you have then let them do what they do exactly exactly and actually that's what so why don't we transition to the second part of the interview where we talk specifically about your book about motivation. So, um, uh, 
Yeah. What, when, when did the idea for the book first, first come to you? So I kind of, I lived through this process that I called motivation during this uh, weird career crisis in the summer of 2022. Uh, it was a time when I was trying to think about what it was that made me do my best work. And there were lots of good books out there about the subject of motivation. Um, but they all talk very much about uh, the scientific exploration of how people behave when they are doing good work and less upon the conditions of what makes people do their best work. And it's because it's different for everybody. And that's why I particularly branded it as Mojovation because there's this mojo, there's this thing that's really hard to define. It's different for you than it is for me. The conditions under which you do your best work are different to mine. And the real challenge with that in the workplace these days is everyone is very keen to just have these cookie cutter workplaces. They, you know, they spin up one new office and it's open plan and it's got free meeting rooms and they just, there's a generic way of working uh, and people aren't like that. So it's all about um, how we can influence companies to help us create the conditions for better work. It's about um, understanding what you need and then going about getting it. Yeah, there's there's two uh, I think two really important points in there that we might want to kind of kind of uh, tease out a little bit. Um, one is the fact that everyone's different, uh, and the other one is the intangibility. Uh, that you write about in your book, it's hard to measure things that are intangible, uh, and um, that what that but what what both both the sort of uniqueness element and the intangibility mean that, in a sense, kind of science can only go so far or can can only have so much applicability, right? Because science is all about identity. You know, one water molecule and another water mo molecule are the same under you know dip, under the same conditions and behave the same way. So you can come up with experiments and you can then apply it. You know that if I apply, you know, the Bunsen burner over here and the Bunsen burner over there, it's going to have the same effect. But if if all molecules were unique uh, and intangible, you couldn't you couldn't do science on them. Um, and so uh, I gather for your book, you you actually did a lot of research, though, like reading reading all kinds of other books about productivity and management and things like that. Yeah, I, I think Daniel Pink's Drive is is a really really great one. It, it gets into the concepts of of both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, um, where extrinsic motivation is the things that we think will make people happier. So it's giving them a new job title or it's giving them some more money. The challenge with those being that they they don't last. Once you give someone some more money, they buy a bigger house and now they want more money or they've one rung up on the career ladder and they're looking at what comes next and now their goals have shifted and now they want that next thing. The real value that, that Daniel Pink talks about is, is of intrinsic motivation, which is um, that, that feeling inside you that lasts, that makes you like, that nourishes you when you're working. And he speaks about uh, three different factors of that. There's um, having autonomy, so having control over what it is that you do. Um, you know, you're not just told go and do this job now, because then there's no freedom to be creative. Uh, there is mastery, and mastery is where you have the chance to to basically do deliberate practice, and you're developing skills as you go and you're not just told you're doing this today and that thing tomorrow and you don't feel like you're learning anything. Mastery is whether you get the chance to do the same things over and over again so that by doing work, you are acquiring skills and abilities that can then serve you further along. And then the third factor is purpose. So purpose means you're doing something that has meaning and that meaning is also has to be beneficial. I, I once worked for a company, it's a really great company to work for, a really wonderful team that I worked with, but the software that we were building 
um, was designed to help uh, automate processes within site within mail rooms. So to do mail sorting and like identifying what letters are about automatically and classifying and things. So it, it was really nice and really clever software that did stuff with uh, OCR and scanners and stuff. But the purpose was to put people out of jobs, was to say, hey, you, your mailroom's got 100 people in. Take our software and you only need 10. And at the moment I realized that, I'd been there for a while before that clicked with me and I was like, if I build better software, people lose their jobs. And that's a real example of how, um, you know, a job that had once seen appealing to me, it suddenly lost that appeal. Yeah, no, that's that's a really that's a really good story. Um, uh, particularly, I think it gets at something that, that, that you also write about, which is that, you know, if I mean this this book is for, uh, hopefully, managers read it to understand things from an employee's perspective. But there's a lack of control that you have about things when you're an employee that you might have if you're an, if you're the rare owner, as it were. Um, uh, and, you know, that that idea of like purpose, the purpose of the company might be out of alignment with what your own personal purposes are. And this is just a kind of, it's just an unresolvable thing in a sense, because you're not in control of that company. And so uh, one thing that one needs to keep in mind throughout one's career is that there's going to be this balancing act of like what you want and what the company wants or needs. Mm -hmm. And keeping in mind, you know, I might like, I, I gather you probably periodically going, do I really want to be working here? Um, uh, and, and things like that, or you have to be kind of self-monitoring all the time. I think one of the messages throughout the book is is one of pragmatism. Um, I mentioned at several points that in, in the early days of my career, so I've been in software development for, for 20 years. In the early days, the sort of things that made me want to leave companies, I didn't realize they were just how all companies operated. <laughs> like office politics and and like playing the game. I didn't know the game existed until probably 10 years into my career. And then, okay, that's what a lot of workplaces are like. But a lot of it is about making small nudges on the things that you do have control over. Uh, again, to, to to give another another quote, the whole quote around um, asking forgiveness, not permission. Like the idea that if, if you try and do something that will advance your career and that's trying to do good, then it's very difficult to criticize someone who's doing that. You can say, okay, well, now's not time and maybe we want to look over here, but someone who's actually demonstrating that they want to advance their careers to the next level is, is, is laudable. Uh, particularly under, you know, situations where in software development with the um, the rise of, of so-called agile development, where uh, agile is sometimes just a euphemism for let's just do as much work as we can as fast as possible. The idea that someone might take a step back and think about sort of working sensibly and how we can improve our processes is one that's, that's is generally well, well received. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting that idea that um, taking, taking an initiative when you're an employee can, can be kind of risky. Um, but it can also have a, but, you know, it can also potentially have a reward. Um, and you know, the way, like, I mean, you know, there's a million ways the game, the game works. Right. But if you, if you announce an initiative, there might be someone who wants to prevent you from achieving it because maybe you've got a hierarchical structure and there's two of you and there's only one spot above. Um, and if you announce that you're, you're doing something in some initiative, they might try and thwart you. Uh, hopefully you're not in a work environment like that, but you know, people are people and things like that can happen. So actually just like doing something can, can sort of, you know, without, without announcing it, just doing it can actually be really advantageous. On the other hand, you might have been in a situation where someone's like, Hey, I didn't, your, your boss might be like, what are you doing? I didn't tell you to do that. 
and they might get mad at you for various reasons as well. So there's, that's just a sort of a yeah, tricky, tricky thing, um, that, mm. uh, unfortunately sometimes you need to face in some workplaces. Yeah. There's a really interesting, uh, study into the, the nature of roles by someone in the world of testing called James Back. Uh, and he wrote a piece that, that, that talks about a job role as being a bit like similar to playing, I, I don't know, whatever your preferred sport is, but, you know, p- playing in sports, let's imagine soccer, because it's, you know, I'm from the UK. Uh, if you're a goalkeeper, you know, your job is to stand in goal and stop the ball going in the goal and to handle the ball and kick, get it downfield. Um, as a goalkeeper, are you allowed to kick the ball and run downfield with it yourself? Absolutely. The laws of the game allow it. But in doing so, you're leaving your goal unprotected and that's on you. If you choose to pursue something else because you see a gap and there's an opportunity, then great, but not at the expense of letting the goals in. Um, yeah, it's like your ro- your role is kind of like it's it's a heuristic. Uh, it's it's something you should you should try to follow. It's what you're uh, employed to do, but it's not a prison. You're allowed to go and try other things. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a really good analogy. Um, keeping keep in mind maybe what your sort of like core core thing is, and, and make sure you don't you don't abandon that. But but you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of room to do uh, things uh, within within those constraints. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you that you write about a lot in the book, and I'm just sort of flicking through it here, is uh, something we all probably think we're experts in now, which is like Zoom meetings and things like that. Um, but uh, for anyone for anyone sort of who wants to kind of like, who sort of maybe feels, as it were, still feels uncomfortable with Zoom or is just getting used to sort of video meetings and things like that, what are, what are one or two just to sort of fun you know, what are one or two tricks or, or sort of tips that you have for people to get used to that, used to that kind of world? Yeah. Again, one of the real, like, if we sort of look at the positives of, of COVID uh, and like, the rise of remote working is that all of these tools like Zooms and Google Meets and all the re- related collaboration tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams, they've all matured extremely quickly and introduced features that wouldn't have been a priority otherwise. And it's because it's just like masses of people found themselves using it um, often when they didn't want to, there, there was no other choice. And so the tools began to be tweaked in a way that would make them easier to use. One of the best ones on Zoom is there is an option if you're in a, a call to hide your own video. Like a lot of people just feel uncomfortable looking at themselves all day. People who are very conscious of their image or just, just don't want to be looking at themselves all day. Like I'm happy having this conversation with you. I'm not sure whether I can watch the interview back afterwards because like I don't like seeing myself. But there's an option in Zoom where you could just hide your own view. So you can see what's going on, but you don't have to be bothered with, with a picture of yourself. Um, a lot of it, though, is just, just negotiation with the people that you're, that you're with. If you're in an environment where you feel you are trusted, and we talked about trust earlier, if you are in a organization or a team that is happy to be open with each other and are very comfortable with talking about how they're doing, if you can go to someone and just say, look, I've got two kids behind me today. Is it okay if I just have my camera off or... I missed lunch. She said, okay, I'll turn my camera off because I need to eat a sandwich and you don't want to watch that. Like just being open and honest goes, goes a long way. Like outside of whatever tool you're using, uh, I think um, just uh, the, the other really, really big thing uh, is when we schedule meetings, particularly in the workplace and we use uh, like tools like Outlook or Zoom itself to schedule meetings, it defaults to you know 30 minutes or 60 minutes for an appointment, but meetings don't fit into neat size blocks like that. Like people just, just book a 30 minute meeting for something that might only need five or 10 minutes. Uh, the, the really nice trick that I've found uh, is that if people book rather than 30 minute me- meetings, they book 25 minutes or instead of an hour, they book 50 minutes, like still on the same cadence, like starting on the hour or the half hour. What that does is if someone else's calendar gets bombarded with other meetings, 
you've built five minute breaks into them for them. So they can take five minutes off when your meeting finishes before they get thrown into the next one. The number of companies I've worked in where your day is just blocked out and you end one meeting to join another and you never close Zoom on the entire in the entire day. That just it's just draining. Yeah, no, that's that's totally true. I got to say, I mean, it's funny bringing up this sort of thing. We're all so familiar with what an amazing feature it is to be able to stop your video and mute yourself. Um, I really like that because it means I can listen in on meetings without, well, while I'm doing some doing different work and sort of learn what other, what sort of like, you know, let's say the team working on something that I'm not involved with directly, but just getting to listen, listen in and, and occasionally like the, there's the great thing where it's like, Oh, this is like, I mean, to pick myself specifically. Oh yeah. Len, Len knows about this. And then I can pop in and be like, oh yeah, I remember when we talked about that feature, blah, blah, blah. This author was complaining about this or that, or sort of said, oh, you know, it'd be really great is if you had this and that. And so like, you can actually kind of people on different teams who are, don't necessarily work together can actually attend each other's meetings, um, uh, while being productive, doing something else, but just sort of dipping in, uh, when it's, when it's yeah. productive to do so. The challenge there is is remaining present. Like if if you are there, it's like you're sat in a real meeting room. In the same way that if you're in a real meeting room, and maybe you do have a chance to multitask, but you probably wouldn't be playing on your phone during the meeting. The danger is that someone says, "Hey, Len, do you remember that thing?" And you go, "Oh no, I was doing something else." Actually, can you repeat all of that? And it's it, then it slows the meeting down. Um, so being being present at all times, I think, is still important. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point, and that 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 has had that has happened to me a couple times where I like I kind of you know do derail it because it's like wait a minute, sorry, yeah, I know I wasn't I wasn't actually listening, um, so that is that's totally a good good point to make. Um, uh, just moving on to the last part of the interview where you talk about your experience writing. So uh, I know you attended a writers retreat at a certain point and things like that. Um, so when you when you were writing, uh, can you just talk a little bit about your approach to it? Did you uh, you know, block off, like, you know, tell your, tell your family, like from eight to 10 PM, I'm going into that room over there and I'm working on this book until I'm done. Or did you take weekends off or did you only work on the book on weekends? Just if you could talk a little bit about your approach to that. And I know you're in organization and things like that. So I'm quite yeah. curious <laughs> to hear how you did it. Absolutely. And I think part one challenge was just starting in the first place. It's amazing how quickly it came together after I started. It's the whole, when the task looks so big, you just don't want to even start chunking off pieces of it. It, it looked looked daunting. Um, and it was this writing machine that I went on in the, in the summer of 2023 that, that really helps with this. I took it's four nights, no, five nights in, in a, again, a small village in the north of England in Yorkshire um, among fellow writers. They were all fiction writers, so it wasn't like we weren't doing the same thing, but keeping each other accountable, at, like having that thing of saying, hey, I'm going to go away now. I'm going to write for two hours. I'm going to try and, try and get 1,500 words out and then we'll have some lunch together. And then we'll go for a walk around the village and just keep myself accountable was something that was really good. Uh, I've always followed um, techniques such as Pomodoro, the Pomodoro technique where you um, set yourself a timer and say, I'm going to work for this long. Often it's 20 or 25 minutes. And then I'm going to make myself take a five minute break and step away from the keyboard so that you're not just going right, right, right for three hours and the quads of your work goes down and you get a headache and you don't want to think about work ever again. Just these ideas of doing doing short sprints. I have a, an actual physical uh, clock on my desk that actually I could just say, I want to work for that long, 20 minutes, and it'll tell me when that 20 minutes is finished. And it just, oh, and it beeps, which is probably not great for a podcast. But <laughs> um, just, just, I like to stay in the zone, but not for too long. So short, sharp sprints. And that first four or five days at the writer's retreat, 
I got most of the first draft of the of part one of the book done. The book is divided into two major parts, but the first part came together then. And after that, it was just, okay, so as you say, sort of being deliberate and regimented. So yeah, I'm going to do two hours this day and two hours the next day, uh, little and often. Uh, it's a practice I've always tried to to, to build in, into my life is, is developing a habit by doing it frequently. You don't have to do it a lot, just a bit uh, every, every single day if you can. Uh, I'm actually right now really looking forward to recording this in October and next month is uh, NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month that happens every year. Every year it gets to like November the 1st or 2nd and I see everyone talking about it and I go, I wish I'd remembered it was coming around. This year I'm ready. So this habit that I've developed by writing this book, uh, it's going to hopefully develop into an interesting something during NaNoWriMo. Um, That's my alarm going on. I can go away. (laughs) That was a second. Yeah, no, that's really great. Um, uh, yeah, National Novel Writing Month is uh, is something that a lot of people really love, and I, the thing, one, the reason, one of the reasons I really like it is like it's the, um, as you say, one of the one of the biggest challenges for writing is just doing something every day. Just do something, do a little bit every day, um, and you know, like at the end of the month, at the end of the year, uh, you'll have you'll have a lot to go over, even if you throw it all out. You know, you, you would, there's a lot of good thinking and practice, de- developing your practice and your voice and things like that that can go, that can happen. And yeah, techniques like the Pomodoro thing where it's like, you know, know what, you know, it's just going to be 20 minutes. I can forget about everything else. The clock's right there telling me what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, uh, things like that can be really helpful and particularly writing retreats as well, actually, which is something we don't, we haven't really talked about on the podcast before, but like getting away from all your ordinary obligations and interruptions and things like that and having a dedicated time, like chunks of days to just write can be a really amazing experience. I would would love to do it again. It, it's not the easiest to do. As I, I do have a three year old who I, who I look after a lot of the time, but um, building in the chance to do that was was amazing. Uh, just just the frequency of of writing and also just learning that your first draft doesn't have to be perfection. That's what that's why it's a draft. Yeah. You will read it over and over again. Um, I got into the habit of I would write without reviewing for one day. And then I'd begin the next day by reviewing what I'd written the day before, like having allowed sleep to happen and to reflect on what I've done. Just read, read what I wrote, see whether it approximately makes sense. And at that point, I'm then I'm sort of, sort of already at a, at a jog and I'm ready to start doing the next the next chapter. So, um, I yeah, I I am extremely regimented, uh, and that that really worked well for me. That's a really good tactic. That's really interesting. Um, the last question I always like to ask on the podcast, if the guest is a, is a lean pub author is if there was one thing while you were working on your book on lean pub that had you shaking your fist at the screen going, damn you lean pub, why doesn't this work better? Or why is this broken? Or if there was one magical feature we could build for you, any feature at all, what would you ask us to do? Okay. The, the one that I had, uh, was probably on me. I mean, it definitely was on me that there were several points at which I'd I did something because I was using the uh, publishing via GitHub. So using the, the pro membership to right. upload publishes via, via GitHub. It also meant I could do unlimited previews, which is just, just like, I always wanted to see what, what I just done looked like. And it was really, really useful. The problem was that if, if I made a syntactical error in the, the Marqueo syntax somewhere, uh, and it goes to like that 34 step publishing process and like it was step 16, I think it just goes, no PDF generation failed. And I know that somewhere in there, there's an option to turn on advanced debugging and get more information about what it was. But I just had to look at what did I, what have I changed since last time I pressed publish and just kind of do like a, 
what they call like a binary chop. Like, let's take out half the changes. Does it work now? No, it must be something in the other half. And like, just now, like, what had I done? It was always something stupid. Like, I'd put a link, a a, a URL link inside a footnote, uh, rather than just. It, it was also it was always me me having done something, but it wasn't always obvious what it was. I will say though, just as a platform, uh, really, really haven't enjoyed using EPUB. I'm going to be using it for more professional books in the future because. The fact that I, I can use Markdown, which is what I use day to day when we're writing curriculum, uh, working Markdown, uh, like I didn't have to think about what I was writing. Like the process just got out of the way. I could just write, and Leapfrog's okay with everything else for me. So, um, as much as I would make the occasional mistake and tear my hair out for ten minutes, um, it was a learning process. Thanks very much for sharing that. That is a frustration that many a lean pub author has expressed over the years. So for anyone listening, um, if you're writing in one of our writing modes, we have an upload writing mode. So if you if you've made your ebook somewhere else or you want to use some other tool, like that was built to accommodate the fact that we love authors taking all kinds of different approaches. So if you just want to make your ebook your own way and you want to upload it to lean pub, you can do that and take advantage of all our other features. But part of the core of lean pub is, you know, this writing process where you write in plain text and you can do it in GitHub. You can do it in Dropbox. You can do it in the browser. Um, and then we've got a, a basically a markdown for books kind of plain text syntax. It has all the ideas of a book in there. So you type out the instructions. I want this to be a link, you know, basically. Um, uh, and sometimes um, if there's a, I'm going to put it in quotation marks, so there's a mistake, you know, in, in your plain text syntax, our book generators go ah, and blow up. And, and then often, yeah, it's step 16, PDF generation failed, stuff like that. And now while we do have, and we are working on error messages that sometimes, believe it or not, sometimes the error message is like it was file x.txt on line 262. We actually do have that now, but it doesn't work all the time. Uh, but uh, that that can be, it's way better if you have error messages that show you where the, where the message went, because otherwise you have to do what Neil explained and what I've done. I've spent many, many hours of my own time doing this to help authors with books as well, which is just like, you know, delete, delete half the text files from a test book and see if it runs. And if it does, okay, well, then I know the problem was in the half that I deleted. And yeah, anyway, that's, that's no, that's kind of no fun. Um, and so actually one, but one answer to that is something that you mentioned as well, which actually frequently previewing, um, which is where you create a copy of your, well, you use your manuscript to create ebook files that only you see that aren't published or anything like that. And that's, that's kind of the best way. We also have a manuscript versions page. Uh, and things like that, that, that can help. But um, actually, that, speaking of LeanPub doing things for you, um, I wanted to ask you, so I know you've, you've been using our publish on Amazon service, uh, and uh, you're, you're one of you, we've got, we've I have, uh, and as recently as, as Lich, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Lich, literally hot off the press, uh, today I, I received having gone through that, the published on Amazon service, the first, uh, printed, uh, I've got to turn off the blur of my camera so that something gets visible on. Um, da, da, da. Hey, look, this is my living room. <laughs> but hot off the press is the first printed copy of Finding Motivation that's, that's come out through leading pub pushing onto Amazon through KDP. Uh, it's arrived in my hands within a day of it going on online. Um, I've again, much like the rest of the service, I've had to do absolutely nothing to make that happen. It's just happened because uh, the service through leading pub has been um, so amazing uh, and. I just, I'm constantly amazed as, as to uh, the level of service that was provided in terms of spotting mistakes. Like I, I'm not someone who likes to make mistakes coming from a journalistic background, but there's a couple of errors that were caught that even I had missed through various review cycles and, um, just 
the personal touch has got has been there all, all the way, and um, I've been just so impressed. Oh well, I'm so I'm so glad to hear that. Um, uh, it's still a relatively new service, and that's you know not that not that we ever wouldn't pay attention to detail, but we're really paying attention to detail now because basically, for anyone listening, if you've if you've written a book on LeanPub, uh, we've got a button you can click one button, and we'll get your book up in print on Amazon for you. We it costs some money, but the reason we charge is so like is you know because we're we're really doing there there actually is work. And the idea is to give people that magic one button. Just click this button, and you're up in print on Amazon. LeanPub will take care of everything for you. You don't have to learn anything about KDP. You don't have to tell your accountant about getting paid from six different, you know, marketplaces in six different currencies and anything or anything like that. You'll just get it. Just click a button, and LeanPub takes care of everything for you. And you know, you'll get a test book and stuff like that. And yeah, so thank you very much for for using that service because it's. You know, we're we're just so excited to be able to help people get their books in print. And again, like with this sort of magic of clicking, and there'll be some emailing back and forth and stuff like that. But basically, like our goal is to be able to have you click a button and then we just take care of everything. Yeah, I think that's the benefit for me of, of LeanPub. I think it's the best of both worlds. Like I absolutely could have done all that myself. I could have exported the files, gone to KDP, got it set up in every single territory, sorted my own ISBN numbers. Like I could have done that. But one of the things actually in the very last chapter of the book is when we talk about how would we choose to spend our money, um, while you can't buy time, you can spend money to gain time back from somewhere else. So rather than having to go through all that myself, I fired off um, you know, an application, um, LeanPub dealt with it all, and then not many days later, everything was just up and running. It was just superb. Fantastic. I'm so glad it was such a good experience. Well. Neil, thank you very much for taking some time out of your evening to talk to me and to talk to all of us. And thank you very much for being a LeanPub author. Anytime. Thanks so much uh, to you and to LeanPub. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.